John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Isn't that awesome love? Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. How many hopes for that day? That hope in itself changes our lives. Verse number four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever Sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now in another place, John says, whoever says he hasn't sinned is lying. So what he's speaking of here, I believe, is sinning as a lifestyle. Just wallowing in it and staying there and making it part of your life's practice. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, see he's talking about practicing. Practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins, that is, practices sin, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, the Lord's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. He's obviously speaking of practicing. We cannot live a life practicing sin because the life of God is in us. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart against him, shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son and love one another as He gave us commandment. And He who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you give us understanding. Lord, we want to share uh, more than just a perspective. But Lord, 
Show us your whole counsel concerning this question today. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for loving us, choosing us, blessing us, saving us, and making us your own, and giving, in, giving us a desire to please you and to fulfill the commands of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Can we lose our salvation? On one hand, the devil says, yes. On the other hand, he says, oh, no. Similar questions were asked in our quest for questions, and they all boiled down to this one, which was determined to be the third most important one. Can you lose your salvation? Some of the other questions that were similar were, that were asked were, is once saved always saved the truth, or is once saved always changing the truth? Does Hebrews 6, 6 mean that you can lose your salvation and not get it back? Why can't we take the chance to live sinful lives for a few years of enjoyment and then get it right with God just before we die? Can I live like hell and repent in purgatory? This attitude causes another question that might come from the unbelieving community. Why should I go to church when it's full of hypocrites? Let's see what the Word of God has to say about such matters. This question has been argued for centuries with one side saying, yes, you can lose your salvation, and the other side saying, no, we are eternally secure. Both sides quoting verses to prove their points. Sometimes logic is even brought into the argument, if you can believe it. With some stating that God would never abandon his children. That would make him a bad father, and we know he's good. And Jesus would never abandon his bride. That would make him a bad husband, and we know he's our model husband. While others will reason, yes, God will never abandon us as a corporate group, but he cannot allow hypocrites in heaven because they are causing so many to go to hell. What is the truth here? Should we flip a coin and yield to the loudest voices or give way to the strongest personalities, let the extroverts have it? With our having established why we believe the Bible is true, and I recommend you get that CD, I think we should go there first for our answers for tough questions like this one. Can you lose your salvation? In other words, can we lose our eternal life in heaven? If you're an unbeliever, we are people that love you and are glad that you're here with us. And why this question is such a bother is the scriptures have so many promises about eternal life that God gives us and we're going to look at some of them, how no one can take us away from her, away from him, how that we are secure in his sight. And yet there are other verses that warn us that, you know, un, uh, wicked people aren't going to heaven. And so we could give way to logic and say a father wouldn't reject his children or in heaven we're known as we're unknown. So why would, allow a, why would God allow rebellion in heaven? He's thrown it out already one time before with the angels. So let's see what the Bible has to say. Can we lose our salvation? Jesus said in John 3:16, the most quoted verse in the world, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You may say, well, I'm a good guy. Why would God condemn me? I don't need Jesus. Well, you may be a good guy, but you need to understand you've been born into a planet that has been condemned. God is going to melt this thing one day. You think global warming's bad. Watch out. Watch out. He came 
as a man, the Son of God, to bring salvation to a condemned people. You're already condemned. No matter how good you are, you cannot uncondemn yourself. But through faith in what God provided in Jesus, His Son, He offers salvation. That may be offensive to you, but think of it like this. If God did this and you reject it, does that really make you such a good guy? Kind of speaks of rebellion to me. I want to make my own way. Well, what about all the other religions? Well, let's just talk about you right now. Jesus loves you, he cared for you, and you're going to hear the gospel this morning. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Our salvation began with God giving his son to live, die, and arise from the dead for all of us. This was his initiation totally, given up for us all so that we might believe in him and receive eternal life. God did this, and we just step into it by faith. And he's the one that gives us the ability to believe. It's impossible to believe the gospel unless God helps you. So he's done it all. Everything to do with saving you and I, God has done. John 6, Jesus said, and this is the will of him, verse 40, who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Most assuredly, verse 47, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So we have everlasting life now, and we have hope for it in the future in our being raised up. Our eternal life begins when we believe in Jesus. Can we say when we believe? Not after we die and go to heaven or when we're raised up at his return. We already have it. I was raised up in a denomination that didn't believe anybody was saved unless they died and didn't have any unrepentant sin. Then they were saved. That's eternal insecurity. I'm sorry. That's not the truth. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you're a true believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have eternal life, and no one can take it from you. You are an eternal being. You will always exist. Christ has given you eternal life. Well, what about death? Well, the Bible does acknowledge it as a reality. Well, I thought Jesus destroyed death. We put it under, our, under his feet. One day he will put it under our feet. 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Well, I thought a pre-TV preacher said Jesus destroyed death. No, he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil, so that we who through all our lifetime were subject to bondage through the fear of death might be set free. Death is no longer something for us to fear because for the believer in Jesus who has the free gift of eternal life, death is simply a changing of residences. Your body through sickness or death becomes no longer inhabitable and your spiritual self leaves no longer there. In this place, we often have, well, not often. We have had funerals where the earth suit of the person, their bones are present in the room with us. 
they're no longer here. And we celebrate their life if they're saved. If we don't, we just preach the gospel. They're in the hands of a merciful God. Amen? Faith is in Jesus, not in the goodness of the deceased. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What's this contradiction? Though he die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There is a doctrine, that a wind of doctrine that blows through the land. Winds of doctrine come about because people grab a hold of a handful of scriptures and ignore the rest of them and push them to an extreme interpretation, and they believe you'll never die. There was an old man here, like 90 years old, that believed it. You'll never die unless you sin. Well, I guess he must have sinned. He finally died. He says, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The fact is, we will never die, but our bodies will. And when Christ returns, we have the promise of a new body. So when we are absent with our body, what goes on? Well... According to the Scriptures, we're asleep. And yet, according to the Scriptures, we're with Jesus. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So I, I, I agree with those preachers that say those who die are asleep in Jesus. On this side, they're asleep. On that side, they're with Jesus. Maybe they escape the bonds of time and they're doing stuff. I don't know. But on this side, they're asleep. We're looking forward to the resurrection day when they're awakened when they receive their new body. Amen. For those of us who have eternal life, death is no longer something to be feared because we understand that ultimately it does not bring an end to our life. So what is death? It's an ending. So for us, death is simply an ending of the existence, the vitality of our bodies, but not of us. First John 5:13, the same writer who recorded those words of Jesus said this, "These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know let's say the word no, know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God." Notice the words "continue to" are in italics. The translators added them to to give understanding, but we actually can remove them and see literally what he says, that you may know you have eternal life, that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. What does the name of the Son of God mean? We believe it. It means Yahweh saves. If you believe in his name, you believe God saves. Jehovah saves. Not my goodness. His. Amen? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just mental assent that he existed or that he was a good person, but do you believe in him to the point of trusting him to forgive you of your sins, remove those things that obstruct your relationship with God? Have you called on his name to say, Jesus, is God save me? I mean, one word, it's all right there. Have you called on his name to save you? Do you know that you have the free gift of eternal life? My ultimate purpose this morning is, is, is to warn. I mean, one of my purposes is to warn those that think they can live sinful lifestyles and have eternal life. Be careful there. 
But it's more than that. It's to encourage the person who's insecure who wonders whether or not they'll go to heaven. If you believe in Jesus and you've received eternal life, you can know that you're saved and not have to live with insecurity and fear, wondering. You can know. I had an Arabic pastor in Richardson. His name was John Kershaw. And he preached in no soul salvation. No soul. You can know so. You can know it so that you're saved. The question always comes up, what is your perspective on hypocrites? Let me get, get back to my notes here because it seems kind of jerky just to, just to jump there. Oh, yeah, here we go. Who in their right mind would want to throw all this away? We could go on and on reading scriptures this morning that reveal the security and eternal life we already have as believers in Jesus and receivers of the gift of God's saving grace. Such truths should inspire us to love and good works, inspiring songs in our heart about Jesus like, Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. And some believers have camped right here and done well without understanding some other things I'm about to share from the New Testament. While others have not done so well, and by defending their hypocritical lives of disobedience through quoting these wonderful scriptures like these that we've just read, they ignore other scriptures. It is here where the question arises, is the once saved, always saved issue the truth? And is it true for hypocrites? It's not so much because of those who may have stumbled and need the help of a brother or a sister to come alongside them and help them get back up on the narrow path. But it's a question involving those who make wickedness their lifestyle and misrepresent Jesus to the world. Are hypocrites saved? There are three perspectives on on this question. Number one, first perspective, we'll look at each one in, 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 with uh, some biblical references. Hypocrites were never saved to begin with. Another perspective is people suffer from a lack of knowledge. That's the one I lean toward the most. Number three, sinful lifestyles are no big deal. Some people believe that. And because of a lack of knowledge... Some people are misled to believe in that. Today we're going to hopefully enlighten, be enlightened from the Scriptures to see that they are a big deal, that some repentance needs to be going on. Hypocrites were never saved to begin with. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Well, these are charismatic hypocrites. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, notice the word practice, lawlessness. These people are not true disciples. They may be spiritual, but not true disciples because of their life's practice. Some illustrations of, uh, that would bear out this possibility is a parable of the tares in Matthew 13. Jesus said the kingdom 
of God is like a man who sowed a field for wheat, and at night an enemy came in and sowed tares, undesirable plants. And the servants asked the owner when, they, when it became obvious that, that this had happened, should we remove the tares? He said, no. If you remove the tares, you'll uproot some of the wheat. It's my understanding that when plants grow together, their, their, wheat, their uh, roots mingle up with each other. It's also my understanding that tares look a whole lot like wheat until it's harvest time. At harvest time, wheat humbly bows with fruit, and tares just stand proud and straight. At harvest time, the angels will separate the two. He said the kingdom of God was like that. You know, a lot of his parables, if you look at them in depth, there's always a side to the parable that is an explanation of evil. See, God's kingdom is not evil, but it's all-encompassing. And it is a kingdom at war. And so present in these parables are wonderful lessons as well as evil to be warned about. The parable of the sower, you got the birds of the air. Who's that? That's the devil who comes in to steal the seed. And so here we have the parable of the tares, an example of the enemy putting in false converts or counterfeit Christians or hypocrites. Does this mean we should become suspicious and look around for who might be a tear and not fellowship with that person? The Scriptures do give some reasons why you may not want to fellowship with someone, but they are redemptive reasons, not condemning reasons. So that brother or sister who may have fallen into sin can miss the fellowship they've lost because of the sin that's in their life and come back home. You know, prodigals come home. Another example that could bear, that, bear, bear out this thing of uh, hypocrites never being saved is Simon the sorcerer of Samaria. He was there when Philip went to preach. He witnessed the miracles and healings that were done, and he was part of the large crowd that Philip baptized. And he was there when the apostles from Jerusalem came down and laid hands on all the baptized believers to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that when he (laughs) saw that by the hands of the apostles the Holy Spirit was given, it doesn't say what happened. In Acts 2, they spoke in tongues. Acts 8, it didn't tell what happened. Whatever happened, it was something he wanted. And so he offered to buy money, buy this ability with money. And and he was rebuked as though he was of the devil, basically. Your money perish with you. So he may very well have been a false convert. Second reason for the hypocrite issue may be that because of a lack of knowledge, a person has hypocrisy in their life. And we'll look at it from two reasons. The, the second reason actually has to do with the third thing. Uh, some people say it's okay to live a lifestyle of wickedness. It's fine. Well, if they've been misinformed, it's that lack of knowledge of the truth that we're going to look at this morning that's caused them to open the door to the enemy. But to whom much is given, much is required. When you hear the truth today, if, you're, if that fits, if that shoe fits, you need to put it on and walk away from that stuff. <clears throat> but what, what I really like to focus on is the lack of knowledge, lack of knowing that God loves you, a lack of knowing that he has chosen you, he has set his love upon you, 
And by his grace, you are saved, not by your performance. If you get a performance mentality and you are earning your salvation, it's going to set you up for failure because you cannot live perfect in your own strength. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is all about knowing God, not about earning rewards, about knowing him. 1 John 5.20 says, We know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So eternal life is in knowing him who is true. And if you draw near to God, he will convict you of your sins. He will. So don't run from him. Run to him. Especially when you've messed up. Don't run from him. Run to him. Maybe you grew up in a home where if you got in trouble, you were on probation for months. And you hated to admit it. And kids that grow up in homes like that become lawyers to do everything they can to repel their conviction. But in the kingdom, just receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit, respond, repent, and you go free. Amen. People suffer from a lack of knowledge. Uh, Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Some people have chaos going on in their life and they don't realize it's God removing his hand of blessing so that they can be disciplined when they don't heed the discipline that comes from the word. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. Amen? So don't get mad at God. Look at God and say, okay, God, you know, is there something going on here? For whom the Lord loves, Hebrews 12:6, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, I don't believe God chastens with sickness, but I believe he can punish us. If he's a loving father, he will. Children that are never punished grow up into sorry adults. Um, ben Franklin said, spare the rod, spoil the child. The Bible says, Spare the rod, that's a symbol of discipline. Hate the child. You'll create a human being that you can't stand being around. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The King James Version isn't so nice. It says if we're not chastened by God, we're bastards. So God is required as a father to bring discipline into our lives. You burn, you learn. You lie, you fry. He'll teach you to walk in obedience. You want to know how, how to know that you're saved? When you do wrong, you don't feel good about it. You want to find a place to repent. And what really hurts is when you do wrong and you repent, you get up and you do it again five minutes later. That just, help! Because you know it's not right. And it's not so much a fear of going to hell as a knowing that, that you've hurt your father. It's about relationship that our obedience flows out of.
a lack of knowledge. Now let's address this third approach to the hypocrisy question. Sinful lifestyles are no big deal. Well, we read this this morning. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. We just do, just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, there is a theology out there that teaches when I sin, it's not me sinning. It's my body sinning that's going to die. Be careful there. That's ultimate irresponsibility. The world won't buy that, that witness. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God, verse 9, does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Paul is even stronger language, and he's the apostle of grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the inherit the kingdom of God? And then he begins to list people that have made sin their lifestyle. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual wolves. That's people living in that sin. Nor sodomites, nor thieves. Somebody's made their living stealing stuff. You're doing that. You need to repent. Otherwise, you're a thief. You're not going in the kingdom of God. But the good news is in verse 11. And such were some of you. Let's all say the word were. Were. In Galatians 5, he lists the works of the flesh, and they're all, they all have to do with lifestyle stuff. He said, those who practice, verse 21, Galatians 5, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians 5, 5, says, you know no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So, sinful lifestyle is a serious matter. Why would God, why would God allow chaos in heaven? He wouldn't. In heaven will be known as we know, as we are known. When you get there, you're not going through a personality change. I believe everybody there has a submissive attitude. We may not be perfect, but we'll have perfect bodies. Hallelujah. That's one battle out of the way. But we'll go there and really learn some stuff. Amen? It is a serious matter to be living in sin. Biblically, it is a big deal. Now, we've read scriptures on two sides of the argument. What appears to be an inconsistency in the scriptures can rightly be called a paradox. Like the opposing banks of a river, 
Biblical paradoxes, when understood properly, serve the purpose of bringing to us the purer and more complete waters of truth. Without banks, a river is a what? At first, but as it thins out, it becomes a swamp. The waters of life, the pure waters of truth, there are extremes that it flows between the two. It's in that tension that the truth exists. A musical instrument where strings are strung, this will illustrate it. There's, if there's no tension, then you don't have music. But a string is strung to the right vibration, you have a guitar in tune. A believer that is in tune has the right understanding that his eternal life is eternally secure. And why would he want to live a lifestyle of sin? Why would a son want to go to the pig pen? If you do, you're going to get tired of it. You're going to come back home because you can't help it. The chastening hand of God works. Trust me. It works. So we are secure. Just trust him. Amen. Here's the Brazos River. We see it. Banks. Opposing banks. It's the same They flow together the same thing. Biblical paradoxes. Similar to the positive and negative poles of a battery, the power of truth is present. When what might might look like polar opposites, when they're both fully embraced, it is only then that we begin to approach the whole counsel of God. Beware of promise box Christianity. I love those little promise books, but beware of that. That is not the whole Bible. Read all the scriptures, the stuff that you don't like. Read it. It's good for you. If you'll embrace both poles of God's truth, may it shock all the wickedness out of us. Amen. (laughs) You believe this and you believe that? Yes, I believe them both. That's right. Concluding statements and questions. Lifestyle sinners are not going to heaven. Now, If sin is your lifestyle, it may take a while to change the lifestyle. I understand that. So I'm not up here condemning anybody. You keep believing. You keep pursuing the Lord. You keep fellowshipping and reading the scriptures and worshiping. And keep walking and he will give you steps of action to get out of the traps that you're in. Amen? You choose to stay right there. I don't know that you're not a terror. Those who live sinful lifestyles are not true believers. You stay there. You're really not a true believer, you know. If I really believe in the laws of Texas, I'm not going to drive home 120 miles an hour. I'm just not. I'm not going to run through red lights and overrun, look for stop signs to not stop at. No, because of what I believe. What I believe affects how I live. Question, how is your lifestyle? True believers are those who believe in Jesus enough to follow him and his plan for their lives. He gave his life for us. We respond with our lives for him. Not to earn his blessing. It's already been given. (laughs) And true believers will not lose their salvation. 
the whole thing of losing is, is not a good concept anyway. I mean, I, I can lose my keys because of absent-mindedness. But my salvation has been provided by Jesus. It's not something I have the ability to lose by accident. Now, Jesus did say there was an unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it takes to do that, but I think that would be an intentional thing. And you wouldn't be here this morning if you committed that. You wouldn't worry about that. The conviction of the Holy Spirit's gone. Are you a true believer? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those here who are carrying a burden of condemnation, living in fear of going to hell when you have saved them. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that that burden actually leads to sin because every once in a while they just get tired and weary of the struggle that they're in and they have to go meditate with something wicked, uh, medicate with something evil. Help them to see, Lord, that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And that not only have we been forgiven of our sins, but we have had your righteousness given to us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I pray, Lord, you lift off the condemnation off of your people. I pray, Lord, if anyone here is convicted of sin in their life, I pray, Lord, that they not reject it through false doctrine, but that, Lord, they embrace it as your hand is dealing with them, bringing discipline into their life, making more Christ-likeness to come about. Lord Jesus, help us to respond to your conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8:28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, these He also predestined, Romans 8 goes on to say, these He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Theologians argue about predestination. We predestined as individuals or predestined as a group. Uh, have we always been predestined or predestined when we're saved? Stay away from that. The point is, the purpose of predestination is to make us like Jesus. That's God's intention. What's God doing in your life? He's making you more like Jesus. He uses the truth. He uses His people. He can even use circumstances. Amen? Let us stand. I want to declare to you that God loves you, that He's for you, and that if you need to repent, don't run from Him. Run to Him and receive the free gift of forgiveness. You're not getting saved again if you're saved. You're walking in the benefits of being a child of God. If my son does wrong, there's the benefit of coming to a father for help. God the Father is so much better than us. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and may He give you His peace. And may this question never torment you again as you embrace 
the whole counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go and make him known to the world. Amen.